Hi everyone, this is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. This is the first installment of the August 2018 issue. In this podcast, I'm going to summarize new research articles for you from the August issue of Radiology. A few comments about our August issue. First, there is an instructive image in radiology from Drs. Mimish and Reinhold from McGill University. The title is Reversal of Jejunal Folds in Celiac Disease. In celiac disease, or gluten-sensitive enteropathy, there is malabsorption related to the protein gluten. Celiac disease seems almost trendy right now and is commonly being self-diagnosed. The condition has a genetic component. If there is a first-degree relative with this condition, there is a 1 in 10 chance that another relative could have the disease. The first observation about reversal of jejunal ileal folds on small bowel follow-through was published in 1985 in AJR. This finding was confirmed in 1996 when Barlow, Johnson, and Stevens had a series of 28 patients. 24 of 28 patients had the reversed fold pattern. What is this pattern? Normally, the folds in the jejunum should be more prominent than those of the ileum. In this type of malabsorption, the pattern is switched. Small bowel folds are prominent in the ileum but reduced in the jejunum. This reversed fold pattern is also seen on CT and is the subject of the images example. My first medical experience with celiac disease was in the early 1990s. The patient was a woman with a 30-year history of malabsorption, chronic diarrhea, and abdominal discomfort. Her husband was a physician. He told her that it was all in her head she should calm down for 30 years. Ultimately, she went to see a gastroenterologist at a university hospital. The diagnosis of celiac disease was made. After 30 years, her discomfort in life was finally improved. She told me about this story quite calmly in front of her physician husband, who was anxiously looking the other way during the story. I would like to highlight one more topic in the August issue. Doctors Jeff Rubin at Duke and Richard Abramson at Vanderbilt have a nice review about value in medicine. The title is Creating Value Through Incremental Innovation, Managing Culture, Structure, and Process. This article points out that we pay a lot of attention to disruptive innovation. The iPhone was disruptive innovation. Uber and Netflix were disruptive. In our field, artificial intelligence is likely to be an innovation that disrupts our profession. Disruptive innovation gets a lot of attention, but it is rare. On the other hand, incremental innovation is the process that improves care for patients in a steady, progressive manner while maintaining our core services. The authors discuss the need to innovate in our medical practices. They identify three key elements that can enable innovation in your practice. Number one, create an environment for innovation. If individuals in your radiology practice have new ideas, does your workplace tend to allow these ideas to be heard? Do you have a diverse staff with fresh ideas? Can new ideas be heard or do you prefer to do the same thing over and over because it works? Number two, organize for innovation. Does your practice invest in innovation the same way Apple or Google invests in research and development? Options include protected time to investigate innovation. Is there a formalized process for new ideas and communication? Is there a way to incentivize creativity in your practice? 
Number three, accomplish innovation. It does not help to innovate unless there is also a way to translate the innovation to your practice. Innovation is a creative process, but the goals of innovation need to be established. Doctors Rubin and Abramson discuss a tool called the Innovation Funnel, starting with ideas and ending up with value added for your organization. Unfortunately, this is only a short summary of that topic of incremental innovation. You can find the complete article in the August issue. Next, our featured articles for August. First, I would like to discuss an important review article from the August issue. The title is Current Applications and Future Impact of Machine Learning in Radiology. The first author is Dr. Gary Choi. The senior author is Dr. Keith Dreyer. Doctors Choi and Dreyer are at the MGH in Boston. Dr. Dreyer is probably well known to many of our listeners. He is the vice chair of radiology at the MGH. He is also the chief data science officer and corporate director for enterprise medical imaging for Partners Healthcare, a multi-hospital group of Harvard-related hospitals in Boston. He is a frequent speaker on artificial intelligence, or AI, at medical conferences around the world. You can find some of his talks on YouTube. He is an engaging and intelligent speaker with a great deal of knowledge in this area. This review article focuses on the basics. It is worthwhile for all radiologists to have some working knowledge of AI concepts. I am 100% sure that this dominant topic will shape our profession over the next 10 years or more. We think about earlier decades with massive change due to the development of CT, MRI, or PET scanning. I used to be asked the question, what is the next new modality in radiology? Perhaps we thought of molecular imaging or PET MRI, but those have been slow to permeate our profession. However, AI developments are happening exponentially in our field. Indeed, we have a new RSNA journal called Radiology AI. AI is a broad term that encompasses all facets of problems solved by computers, including planning, language processing, or real learning. Machine learning is a special type of AI, and it has the most potential. So let's define machine learning. Machine learning provides a computer with the ability to learn without being programmed using explicit rules. When I did my PhD, I wrote a lot of computer code. I wrote rules that defined how an image was processed. An example rule. If the brightness is more than 75, then display that pixel in the color red. Another rule might be to divide one image by another image. Machine learning does not work that way. My computer code could not learn and improve with experience. There are three types of machine learning. Number one, supervised learning. In this approach, a radiologist would start by labeling the presence of pneumothorax on, say, 1,000 chest X-rays. These labeled images are the ground truth. The machine is supposed to learn a rule that evaluates the chest X-ray and detects the pneumothorax. Labeled images are required. Number two, unsupervised learning. Here, there are no labeled images given to the computer. The machine is supposed to figure out its own way of getting from the input data to the output answer. For example, imagine that the input to the computer algorithm is the raw data from an MRI scanner. You know that MRI generates electrical signals, 
representing the Fourier transform of the image. If you display the Fourier transform to our brains, it looks like a bunch of dots that make no sense. If we mathematically invert the Fourier transform, we obtain the image of the brain on MRI. In unsupervised learning, we do not program the inverse Fourier transform. The computer algorithm learns by itself how to go from the raw MRI data to produce a standard axial MRI image of the brain. The computer skips all of the explicit mathematical formula, the corrections for multi-coil imaging, the phase unwrapping, and so on, but somehow it makes a brain MRI. This possibility has already been demonstrated. It's not yet perfect, but it's an amazing concept. Number three. The third type of machine learning is called reinforcement learning. The computer gets both positive and negative feedback from the user. There are no explicit rules. But eventually, the computer figures out what is the right answer. For example, I search for the term radiology in Google Chrome. The first hit at the top is our journal published by the RSNA. On my iPad, I use a different browser from Apple with privacy protection. It does not seem to remember or learn what I want. I type radiology, and instead of our journal, it brings me to a website that defines the job of a radiologist. Okay, a few more terms. What is an artificial neural network? A neural network is a mathematical model, a specific type of machine learning. The term is inspired by the structure of the neurons in the brain. There is an input neural layer. That layer might be the input chest x-ray. Then there are multiple so-called hidden layers that do the work. The output layer is last. The output layer tells me there is a pneumothorax. For each layer of neurons, all neurons are fully connected to all neurons in the prior layer with a weighting factor. The weighting factors between neurons are determined when the neural network is trained. What is deep learning? Deep learning means there are multiple neural layers of connections, and thus it is called deep. In practice, the depth of the network is limited by computer processing time and complexity of the problem. What is a convolutional neural network? This is an important term, and you will hear it a lot. A convolutional neural network, or CNN, takes 2D or 3D inputs, like an image. On an image, there is a strong relationship between any single pixel and its neighboring pixels. A CNN is often used to extract features from 2D and 3D images. A CNN has many layers, called convolution layers. These have filter elements known as kernels. CNNs are the most commonly applied machine learning method in radiology. Okay, that is a lot of terminology, sometimes difficult to remember. Let's move on to how these things actually work. First, how do you develop a machine learning algorithm? Can anyone do it? What is required? The first answer, anyone can do it if they have time and patience. This is because some of the best machine learning algorithms can be downloaded from the web for free. A few names of these AI toolboxes are TensorFlow, Cafe, Torch, and Microsoft Cognitive Toolkit. Second, what is required? First, you have to train the machine learning algorithm. I suggest you start by labeling pneumothoraces in 500 to 1000 x-rays. If you can do this digitally, 
you can color the pneumothorax in blue. Then, get another 1,000 or so x-rays without pneumothorax. Now you are set. Feed both data sets into the convolutional neural network. Program the system to find the rules that distinguish pneumothorax present or absent. It's a Monday, so you start the software and leave for the evening. On Tuesday, you look at the answers. Well, some of your cases had a lot of bowel gas below the diaphragm. The CNN thought that the gas in the bowel was a pneumothorax. You need to retrain the network and censor these incorrect cases from the correct cases. It separates out the 1,000 pneumothorax cases from the 1,000 no pneumothorax cases. Write up the report and send it to radiology. Get a high-impact publication, right? Well, no, not exactly. You get a rejection letter. Why? Your algorithm perfectly separated the 1,000 cases in each group. You write an angry letter to me, demanding we reconsider your invention. You say it's incredibly useful. So what's the problem? The problem is that you skipped the next two steps. After you train your algorithm, you have to validate the algorithm. Step three is testing. What are validation and testing? To validate your CNN, you give your algorithm another set of 500 cases that it has never seen before. Now you have a problem. Your first set of cases was all inpatient ICU film. Your next 500 cases were all outpatient cases, and the images simply look different. You get a lot of wrong answers from your CNN. So you have to retune your algorithm in this validation phase. Eventually, you get the algorithm to work on both inpatient and outpatient films. Step two is finished, but still, you are not done. The final phase of evaluation is called the testing phase. Here you grab 1,000 x-rays from a friend's hospital. They use a different manufacturer for portable and upright chest x-rays than in your hospital. You put your friend's x-rays into your algorithm. Now it gets only 80% of cases right. Also, a technologist hears about your project, and he puts some of the x-rays upside down just to give you a challenge you miss all of those cases too. So that's why we rejected your paper on chest x-rays. You trained the network, but you did not validate it with new cases, and you did not have an independent testing set. Did you ever wonder why we were able to do machine learning now, but not 10 or 15 years ago? The answer is related to a company named NVIDIA. NVIDIA became very good at making computer chips for graphic processing for gamers. The cost of graphics processing units came down since there was a huge demand for Microsoft Xbox and Sony PlayStation. Those same computer chips were adopted for machine learning. Now, NVIDIA makes special chips just for machine learning. Time to conclude. I'm sure you have heard about applications in your particular field. Already, there are machine learning tools available that are being tested in the clinic. I'm quite sure that one of the successful topics will be in breast cancer screening. Lung nodule detection is also going to be an early success. Pediatric bone age was demonstrated previously at the RSNA, and we published a nice article on this topic. There are many opportunities for AI in radiology. What problems will we face with AI? Just a few topics. Number one, will AI replace you? Personally, I do not think so. Not soon, anyway. Think of ECGs. Machines have diagnosed many abnormalities on ECGs for years. A cardiologist still looks at every one of them and signs off.
Number two, not enough quality data. AI tools need a lot of data for training. Sometimes the more, the better. In the U.S., it's hard to share data between hospitals. To solve this, many well-known hospitals are cutting deals with Google and others to share anonymized data. Who is labeling the data to identify all the breast masses or pneumothoraces on chest X-ray? Some radiologists are working full or part-time to label the images for AI. At my former department at the NIH, we had radiologists label all of the images on a routine basis. Dr. Ron Summers at the NIH has released 100,000 labeled chest X-rays for public use. This week, Dr. Summers released more than 32,000 CT scans with 2,000 annotated lesions, so good quality data is rapidly becoming available. Number three, regulatory approval. The medical field is one of the most heavily regulated industries. The FDA has already committed to fast-tracking approval for AI and medical devices. Recently, they approved an AI system that diagnoses abnormalities on retinal photographs and another one that detects stroke on a CT scan. I'll stop there. Thank you to Drs. Choi and Dreyer and co-authors for this nice review. We expect to have many articles and reviews on AI in the journal Radiology. We will keep you up to date on new developments. Our next article is related to breast cancer detection by mammography. The title is Automated Volumetric Analysis of Mammographic Density in a Screening Setting, Worse Outcomes for Women with Dense Breasts. The first author is Dr. Natalia Moschina. The study was conducted in Norway. Background. BIRAD's assessment of breast density is standard and is the most common approach. The method is subjective, which means it is the eyeball method. To a layperson, it probably does not sound good if breast density is estimated by eye. Many, or even most women, are aware that greater breast density is a problem. High breast density is associated with lower sensitivity for cancer detection. In addition, the cancer risk is higher in women with dense breast tissue. Given that the issue is important to women, should we have a method that is objective better than the eyeball method? The subjective use of the trained expert eye is common in medicine. One example, there are about 20 million echocardiograms performed annually in the United States. Ejection fraction is estimated by eye in nearly all cases. Still, this topic is about cancer. While there is generally good agreement for the extremes of breast density, the agreement between intermediate breast density grades is worse, about 60 to 80%. Is there an objective approach to grading breast density that removes the physician eyeball from the equation? Purpose. The purpose of the study was to evaluate automated breast software for determining breast density in a screening setting. Methods. Women in the study were from Rogaland and Hordaland counties in Norway. We will talk more about those locations at the end. The study involved about 109,000 women from 2007 to 2015. During this period, many women had follow-up examinations. Breast density was measured using a software program called Volpera. The software gives a score from 1 to 4, ideally somewhat like the BIRAD's breast density grade. Grade 1 is low density. Grade 4 is high density. Remember, in Europe, the breast cancer screening system is different than in the U.S. 
First, screening in Norway begins at age 50. Second, there were two independent mammography readers for every mammogram. A score of one is negative for malignancy. A score of two or higher means probably benign. If either reader gives a score of two or more, then there is a consensus meeting to determine if the women should be recalled back for further assessment. Results. The results focus on either non-dense breast tissue, category one and two, or dense breast tissue, defined as categories three or four. 72% of women had non-dense tissue. 28% had dense breast tissue. Note this is different than in the United States. About 50% of women are estimated BIRADS 3 or 4 dense breast tissue. On the other hand, screening for breast cancer in the U.S. starts at a younger age, 40 or 45, compared to age 50 in Norway. The sensitivity for breast cancer detection was 82% for non-dense breasts and 71% for dense breasts. On first screening examination, overall, there were about 1,800 cancers detected. There were about 400 interval cancers. On screening, the cancer detection rate was 5.5 per 1,000 for women with non-dense breasts. The rate was 6.7 per 1,000 for women with dense breasts. The differences were significant at the P less than 0.001 level. For interval cancers, the rate was almost double for women with dense breast tissue, 2.8 versus 1.2 per 1,000 women. But that is not the whole story. Women with dense breast tissue have different use of hormonal therapy and are younger than those with non-dense breast tissue. So we have to do mathematical adjustment to account for various factors that differ between the two groups. After adjusting for age and other factors, women with dense breast tissue had a 40% greater odds of breast cancer at the first screen if they had dense breast tissue. But for interval cancers, the difference was much greater, almost three times greater odds of breast cancer if breast tissue was dense versus non-dense. Conclusion. There were several prior studies that were smaller populations showing that breast density could be scored by a machine. But this is the largest study to date with over 100,000 women. The women were part of a nationalized healthcare system, so cancer data and patient history was available for a large group of women. Can the results be extrapolated to the United States? Probably not directly. In the U.S., the recall rates are 5 to 10 percent. In Norway, the recall rate was less than 4 percent. Women were older, and we do not know if mammographers in Norway grade breast density in the same fashion as in the U.S. But I do think that the principles will hold. That is, the machine reading of breast density is reproducible. The machine does not get tired does not need another cup of coffee, and is not dreaming of weekend plans on the Cape. Overall, this is excellent evidence that machine-scored breast density can reliably relate to breast cancer risk. I think that we can easily foresee that similar methods will become standard for breast cancer screening with digital mammography. When tomosynthesis is used, the software needs to change, but those advances are already in place. Dr. Leanne Philpotts is the Chief of Mammography at Yale Radiology. She has an excellent editorial in the August issue that has been downloaded hundreds of times. She discusses the translation of these results in Europe to patients in the United States. Finally, I mentioned that the study took place in two counties in Norway, Rogaland and Hordaland counties. 
I had no idea where these were, so I took a look on Google Maps. Rogaland is in western Norway, on the coast. It is the center of the Norwegian petroleum industry. The pictures of the county are what I think of as Norway, beautiful coastal land with fjords, beaches, and islands. Hordaland, Norway, is also on the coast, just to the north. The county has been in existence for more than 1,000 years. The main city is Bergen, with about 400,000 people in the city and surrounding areas. Bergen is the street art capital of Norway. Sounds like an interesting place to visit. Our third study is back to the evaluation of appendicitis. I had two prior podcasts on appendicitis, but none on MRI in adults. The short title of this article is Diagnostic Accuracy of MRI versus CT for Acute Appendicitis. The first author is Dr. Michael Replinger. The senior author is Dr. Scott Reeder. The study was done at my home institution in Madison, Wisconsin. So what is new in appendicitis? Background. As you know, first-line recommendations for suspected appendicitis are ultrasound in children and CT in adults. The results for CT are exceptional, with overall accuracy very high, greater than 95%. So why bother with MRI? First, there are concerns of radiation in younger patients. CT of the abdomen is one of our higher radiation examinations, about 10 millisieverts on average. One possibility is that less radiation for younger adults is a worthwhile consideration. It is also possible to perform MRI for appendicitis without intravenous contrast, although that was not done in this series. Let's look more closely at this study. Purpose. This was a prospective study designed to compare the performance of MRI versus CT for appendicitis in an emergency department setting. Methods. The study patients came from the ED. The study was conducted during normal working hours when MRI and CT scanners were available. Also, typically research support for consent and patient triage is much easier during the day. Recruited patients had a CT scan first done for clinical purposes. A research MRI was performed next within an hour of the CT. The CT protocol was fairly standard. Patients had oral contrast consisting of Omnipake 300 diluted in one liter of polyethylene glycol ingested over one hour. Reconstructions were done with iterative reconstruction and low KV when possible to reduce radiation dose. The average CT dose in this protocol was 8 millisieverts. The MRI protocol used T2 single-shot images in the coronal and axial planes. There were also diffusion-weighted images in the axial plane. Finally, pre- and post-gadolinium T1-weighted images were acquired in axial and coronal planes. The MRI protocol took 30 minutes to complete. Results. The authors were able to recruit and have complete CT and MRI data for 198 subjects. 58% of the subjects were women. The average age was 32 years. The prevalence of appendicitis was 32%. I mentioned that the standard of reference was CT along with medical records for the final diagnosis. For research purposes, the CT and MRI were read later and blinded by three radiologists. The scans were read in random order without clinical information. This is the standard approach and allows an unbiased comparison of the two methods. The readers graded a lot of findings, such as the presence of an appendicolith, size of the appendix, fluid around the appendix, and so forth. 
A five-point scale was used. One, definitely not present. Two, probably not. Three, possible. Four, probably present. Five, definitely present. This scale from one to five is common for research studies. It allows readers to express degree of certainty. I think it also relates to mental toughness and personality. You probably know radiologists who never equivocate. They are very certain of the diagnosis. Other readers hedge. Hedging is related to image quality as well, how obvious the findings are and the personality of the reader. In the end, however, your surgeon wants a diagnosis of appendicitis, yes or no. In this study, the best yes or no cut point was for a score of four, appendicitis probably present. For all the readers by consensus, MRI sensitivity was 97%, CT sensitivity was 98%, pretty similar. MRI specificity was 90%, CT was 93%. Statistically, these numbers were the same given a sample size of about 200 subjects. Then two other numbers, the positive predictive value and negative predictive value. Unlike sensitivity and specificity, the positive and negative predictive value depend quite a bit on the prevalence of disease. In this study, the disease prevalence was 32%. Do you remember what the positive predictive value means? Given a positive test, it is the likelihood that a patient really has the disease. If a patient had a positive CT scan with a positive predictive value of 50%, it means there is a toss of a coin or a 50-50 chance that there really is disease present. Negative predictive value is the opposite. The patient is sitting in your office and the test result is negative. Given a negative test, is the disease really absent? In this study, there was no difference in the positive and negative predictive values for MRI and CT. For a negative test, the values were especially high as we expect, 98% for MRI and 99% for CT. If the test was positive, the numbers are still pretty good, 82% for MRI, 88% for CT. If you have seen a lot of these studies, you also want to know the AUC value or the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve. The maximum AUC value is 1.0. 0.5 is a toss of a coin. For MRI, the AUC was 0.93. For CT, the AUC was 0.97. Anything else? MRI was the new test. I think MRI had a learning curve because readers were not used to it. And MRI had more complex images in multiple planes. The average reading time for MRI was about four minutes, and it was about two minutes for CT. The agreement between the three radiologists was slightly better for CT than for MRI. My impression, MRI is still relatively new for appendicitis. It is nice to know how to do it and how well it performs compared to CT. Maybe you have a botched CT injection or patient motion. Maybe you have a young woman or the patient does not want another CT scan. From these results, it looks like MRI could be a good option. The protocol includes very reliable images like single-shot T2 images. These detect fluid and the location and appearance of the appendix. Some sites advocate not using gadolinium. I think if you are just starting, I would suggest you use gadolinium, just as in the study. A pre-contrast coronal image is done. Then acquire post-contrast axial and coronal images. Look for inflammation and edema of the appendix. Finally, diffusion images. 
Diffusion-weighted images can have many artifacts, but can also be very helpful, and even necessary if you decide not to use GAD contrast. High signal shows fluid and edema in the appendix very nicely. Overall, this is a well-done study by physicians in emergency radiology and abdominal imaging in Madison. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week. Thank you.